Welcome to the Dead Harvey Podcast. This is Brad. I have a great guest with us today, J.D. Ellenberger, Director of Blood on the Real, the Noctambulist, and the upcoming Lacrimose Primrose. Did I say all those right? Just to You most to certainly check? did. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> I must say I had to cheat and look up the pronunciation on those. Um, okay. It is a pleasure to have you here, J.D. I got to say uh, Blood on the Real is a must-see for independent filmmakers. What was really cool about this movie is that regardless of the genre, indie filmmakers will have something to connect with in this movie. You know, they might not be trying to pull off crazy gore effects, but they're still going to be worried about going to jail if they're filming without permits and having the hard drive erase everything they worked so hard on or the millions of other problems that come up with out of nowhere. Uh, what, what really connected with it for me was how down and dirty it got and how authentic the filmmakers are. I can tell they've all been humbled by the challenges they face, but keep pressing ahead anyway, even if they have to do it all over again. And it lets the audience know that if they really want to be filmmakers, there's a price they need to pay for it. So that being said, and experiencing firsthand how difficult things are, my first question is, why do you do it? I think that it would, it, I think it's safe to say that for all of us independent filmmakers, it's an innate process. We just have to do it. I, I can't, you know, there were times when I questioned whether or not it was worth it. And it's, it's almost as though you feel, feel compelled um, to throw yourself, I never, I never expected to be a filmmaker. I was always a musician in bands, and then in 2010, I made a short film, Samhain Night Feast, which wasn't meant for anyone. It was just a 20-minute short for myself and my friends, just because I personally was sick of Hollywood remakes and sequels, and yeah, yeah, wanted to make a re uh, wanted to make a film that I would enjoy watching. And unbeknownst to me, somehow the film was seen by, I, I hail from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. So someone at a, a Pittsburgh film festival, Tim Gross and Charlie Fleming, who do the Bastards of Horror short film festival, somehow got their hands on the film and wanted to show it at the festival. And lo and behold, it was voted best film of the festival that year. And that's how I caught the filmmaking bug. And it seemed to be... I'm like, oh, wow, okay, you know, it's great. Just pick up a camera, make a 20-minute short, and get picked up for a festival and, and get voted, you know, best short. Simple, right? right. <laughs> that was the last time anything happened simplistically with yeah. indie filmmaking. Yeah. Um, after that, I immediately tried to delve into a feature, and, uh, you know, things started off great, and then many pitfalls happened, and I – you know, then, you know, so I instantaneously I was disillusioned by how easy it was because no, then after that, it was nothing but problems. And I felt at one point, like, is this really worth it? I should just give up. Yeah. But it's, you know, once you get it into your blood, you can't, you can't quit it. Yeah. And then I think that's sort of like the common theme with any filmmakers, all the shit they have to go through. It's got to be in your blood to, to make it, to make it through all that. Cause the problems don't ever stop. They just keep happening and forming new hydras and new different, <laughs> new different obstacles to overcome. Yes. If you're in it for anything other than the passion, mm -hmm. you're not going to last long. Yeah. But you met the legendary George Romero uh, after making this and he gave you his blessing for caustic zombies. So tell us about that experience. I did. So, you know, as one can imagine, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, home of Romero, home of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, home of Savini. 
they take their horror very serious there and it's a very tight-knit community and the one thing that's fantastic about it is a lot of the night of living dead romero crew still live in the pittsburgh area so I had just finished Samhain Night Feast. I was ready to embark on my first feature, Caustic Zombies. So it came to my attention that George Romero's son, Drew, had just opened a brand new tattoo parlor. And it was Mm -hmm. roughly 25 minutes from my home. And as part of the grand opening for the tattoo parlor, George Romero and Tom Savini were in attendance. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's cool. So, you know, I went just to meet George Mm -hmm. and... Uh, Drew and I were friends, Mm -hmm. but I had yet to meet Mr. Romero, Mm -hmm. and I don't have enough kind words to say about him. He is a very humble, very gracious, was a very gracious human being, Uh, but I approached him and I introduced myself and I said, Mr. Romero, uh, my name is Johnny. I'm an independent filmmaker. I'm about to embark on my first feature film, uh, a zombie film. And I was wondering if you would be so kind as to give me some pointers, if we could sit. So he and I sat down one-on-one, just the two of us, for at least an hour. And he just gave me so much advice and so much support and insight and his blessings. And it was just absolutely incredible just to to have that experience one-on-one with George and that he... Every time I'd pay him a compliment, he would blush and turn three shades of red and just say, come on, come on. Just such a humble, gracious guy. And I felt as though I was keeping him and, you know, maybe being a nuisance or a bore and that perhaps I should let him go. He's actually the one that kept me there that long saying, oh, no, well, let me tell you this and let me tell you that. And um, and then right about the same time after having Mm -hmm. the pleasure of meeting Romero uh, Gary Striner, who was one of Romero's right-hand men in uh, many of the dead films, uh, he and I became very good friends. Uh, we had gone out to dinner several times. Um, coincidentally, at that same time, the opening scene in Night of the Living Dead, uh, when they're coming into the cemetery, uh, you see a mausoleum, and it was in Evans City Cemetery. And over the years, that cemetery had become dilapidated, or at least that chapel had. And uh, the council Mm -hmm. of Evan City was voting to have it tore down. And Gary Striner and some of Romero's team fought, saying, this is a historic landmark. You can't tear this down. Mm -hmm. So in order to save money, or in order to raise money to save the chapel, Gary Striner decided that he was going to start a charity auction where artists from around the world could come together, sell their art, or donate it to the cause, and then all the money raised would go to save the chapel. And uh, I'm also an artist myself. I'm a wood-burning artist, and Gary had commissioned me to do the one and only uh, official Night of the Living Dead Ouija board, uh, which I (laughs) created and then uh, graciously donated, and they they raised, uh, you know, a good bit of money off mm-hmm. of that. So it was just very nice to be involved, mm-hmm. to meet Romero, to meet his yeah. crew. And then, you know, I never thought that mm-hmm. I left much of an impact on him mm-hmm. at all. I mean, he's Mr. Romero. He meets millions of people. Rough About two or three years after that, I happened to be at a horror convention 
might have been horror find. I think it was upstate Pennsylvania on the border of or on the border of Pennsylvania and Maryland. And Romero was there, and the line to meet him wrapped around the building. And I thought, oh, I've already met George. We've had this great one-on-one uh, conversation. I'm not going to disturb him. So I just kept walking, and he mm-hmm. spotted me from across the room. And the next thing you know, I just hear. At the time, I was going by my moniker, Johnny Daggers. I hear, Johnny Daggers! And I'm like, what? I turn around, and it's Romero just waving ecstatically at me like, hey, come here. I was like, okay, this is a really cool dude. So, yeah, it was a was a wonderful experience and um, couldn't be wow. thankful enough. That's awesome. And that's the same thing that I've heard from everybody else that has met him before is that he's been super kind and really nice to the fans, and they've had nothing bad to say about him, which is awesome because he's such an icon. Yes. Yeah, and that's what people say. They say he gives them advice, and he's just super cool, super cool guy. That's great. So when you were making, uh, uh, tell us about your experience when you were making Caustic Zombies, because you cover this a little bit in, in the documentary, Blood mm-hmm. on the Real. But when you were making that, and it got um, it got a sold out when you screened it, but then you weren't able to release it. Yes, back in my early days, I was notorious for just getting overzealous and jumping the gun on things, and I knew that... Uh, Production had come to a wrap, and my manager at the time was really pushing me, okay, you know, we have to get the word out via radio, any news outlets that we can, let's book a red carpet premiere, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm like, yeah, okay, great, let's do this. Uh, I had never anticipated any issues. The uh, I won't say names out of respect, but somebody from the crew decided – uh, that they were just going to keep the footage we shot at, on actual film and not digital. And they decided that they were going to keep the actual film. Uh, the movie had never got officially released. So uh, my then partner for my film production company, Brian Coddington, came to the rescue. He had uh, enough rough cut footage. And he said, you know what, I think I can color grade this and I think I can fix it enough and get the audio that we can still have the premiere successfully. It's not going to be the director's cut by any means, but it'll be at least enough to save face and still go on with the premiere because everything was booked and the tickets had sold out. Um, So Brian kindly saved the day with what I call a rough cut video um, for the premiere. And then it was probably five or six years afterwards, I did get the the film back the only problem is the the type of footage uh the type of film that we shot on i can't find a proper company to do a transfer for me and in and, and all sincerity that was in my very early days of filmmaking yeah. so if i really wanted to push the issue i have the tapes and i could release it but by the same token i would be absolutely mortified the trailers that one would find on youtube look absolutely fantastic but if i'm being absolutely honest i would i would hide my head in embarrassment if that were to see the light of day so there's a hand few of people that have seen it for a while there i was doing official bootleg uh dvrs that i was selling that was 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Now I think, thank God, I'm glad that that won't see the light of day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just one of those live and learn yeah. processes. You know, the acting, it was back before I really, it was back when I was a guerrilla style filmmaker. So yeah. it was back when, oh, I know you, want to be in a movie? Okay, sure. What, you've never acted before? Oh, I don't care. You know, and it was just kind of like, let's just get everybody that we know. And so, you know, I wasn't honed in on my skill set mm-hmm. yet. The actors had no acting experience. It, w- it was just a, a debacle, to be honest. 
Yeah. Going back to your, your early days of guerrilla filmmaking, your publicist said, ask JD about when he almost got shot at by MP <laughs> police. Uh, so <laughs> tell us that story. Okay. Well, for those who are unfamiliar with Caustic Zombies, the premise, the catalyst, uh, uh, the event that caused the zombies to rise up was based, semi-based off of a true incident of Three Mile Island, uh, which many of your listeners may be familiar with, which was the near nuclear mishap at Three Mile Island uh, in Pennsylvania, near Harrisburg in the 70s. And that if we were to drive to Harrisburg, it would have been roughly a five and a half hour drive from where we were filming the rest of the movie. And a friend of mine said, well, it was actually my production manager at the time said, well, you know, if we just drive 20 minutes down the road, there's Homer City Power Plant where they have reactors that look identical to the ones at Three Mile Island. And so instead of traversing five and a half hours we can only go you know we just have to go 20 minutes down the road and we'll just film at homer city power plant i'm like fantastic let's do this well not a good idea in the post 9 11 era i yeah. found that out very quickly because i just thought yeah. well okay let's grab the camera let's mm -hmm. grab our team we're just gonna drive on to uh, homer city power plant property and just start filming so we did yeah. and unbeknownst to any of us we were picked up on security cameras, which is the only thing that I can guess. And, uh, you know, we were maybe five, ten minutes into filming some footage. This military jeep comes flying up over the hill with the officer, gunned officer, with his guns drawn right on us, stops us, demands that we stop filming, wanted to confiscate the camera. Uh, we luckily talked him out of that, and he said, well, just just stop, just stop filming. And so my cameraman said that he had stopped filming, but he actually did roll the whole thing and got it. But then eventually he says the footage was lost. So whether or not he was just telling me that he had captured yeah. it all, at least audio wise, mm -hmm. or if he was uh, just trying to, yeah, I don't know, but I don't have footage of it, but it was a very, very scary experience. And that oh, wasn't the first time. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm laughing hearing that story just because it's such a like a crazy story. But if I was in that situation, I would be probably needing some depends. A little bit. <laughs> well, am I going to make it through this alive? Yeah, that's, that's, that's I mean, that's, in all fairness yeah. to the power plant and security there, I mean, they had no idea if yeah, we were yeah. there for something nefarious. <laughs> were we filming to possibly um, detect security flaws within the uh you know within the power plant if we were to yeah. do something nefarious so i understand now but at the time yeah i'm like oh the things we do to make a film but yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that's something that's like when you're younger you don't think about it as much and then but then when you get older you're like oh, i did all this crazy shit how do i, how do I live through that yeah uh, <laughs> i mean if we didn't get shot we could have been imprisoned i mean yeah, no you name it heavily yeah. fined so and like an indie production, if you don't have any insurance or anything, then you're really in trouble. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So now this, uh, the Noctambulist, uh, this is really cool because I love that you did this because this is a silent movie. Uh, and it kind of like harkens back to those German expressions movies like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yes. Um, and Hollywood would never let anybody make a movie like this. It doesn't matter who it was that was on their payroll. They would never let anyone make a movie like this. So did you make this because this is something that, Hollywood never let anybody make, or was there some other reason behind it compelling oh, you to make it? Yeah, there are many, many reasons uh, for that film. It's actually a film that I had wanted to make since I began 
my career in independent filmmaking. However, I knew that the timing had to be just right. I had to get better at my craft. I had to have a bit more of a budget, uh, obviously, because we needed 1920s antiquities. We needed 1920s cars and clothing. And so, you know, at the early stages of my career, it just wasn't feasible. But I had grown up as a lover of German expressionist films, uh, filmmakers like Fritz Lang and F.W. Murnau. And you, you know, had mentioned Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or there's Phantom Carriage or Daughter of Darkness. And so these are all films that it inspired me from the time I was very young, and I mean roughly five years of age, watching these films with my father and falling in love uh, with that style of cinematography. And right after Blood on the Real, which I know my distribution company probably cringes every time I speak about it, I felt that it was a compelling documentary to tell. I don't like the documentary in the slightest. Um, just because I don't feel, it wasn't really my film. I didn't have the budget to traverse the universe to meet all of these filmmakers in person and take my own yeah. camera and my own lights. And so every filmmaker, I just emailed a list of questions, had them film everything on their end. Um, so not to digress, but so with that, you get different lighting, different audio, different video formats. And so there's some continuity issues with sound and with lighting. And some people had a really nice backdrop. Some people didn't spend much time. So I don't really consider blood on the real my film per se i almost consider it like a mixed tape that we would do back in the day yeah. where you just kind of just take a bunch of clips and put them together for people but so noctambulous is what i really consider my first professional foray into the world of filmmaking and i wanted to take that very seriously and so right after blood on the real i started working on a script for noctambulist i had just moved from pittsburgh pennsylvania to maryland and i was just rebuilding my film production company and Luckily, I met a really wonderful lady by the name of Buffy Roman Fox, who is a professional hair and makeup artist. And then she introduced me to friends of hers who had a 1920s style home. It was actually built in the late 1800s. Their house was furnished with 1920s antiquities. And uh, they were so excited about the film that they just let me film there for free. They just wanted to be a part of the experience. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and then we had a gentleman who donated a 1920s vehicle, just dropped mm -hmm. it off, said, I don't even want to stay and watch. You can just use the car for the movie, no pay, no nothing. Just everything had fallen into place with that movie. Wow, that's cool. I almost think it would be the opposite with like trying to do a period piece like that, where before even more things would go wrong. One would think that was actually <laughs> yeah. pretty flawless. Everything worked out just fine. I mean, at that point, I began taking myself very serious as a filmmaker. I wasn't doing anything guerrilla style anymore at that point. Everything was with permission and made sure that we had clearance for whatever we shot. The home was given to us, you know, for free. We shot in a very, I don't know, I don't know if you've watched Noctambulist or parts of it, but. Oh yeah, yeah, I watched it yesterday, yeah. Oh, very cool. Uh, the beautiful ballroom that we have mm -hmm. at the beginning, which is kind of like a speakeasy, uh, that was gifted to us. That should have cost us at least $1,000 a night. Yeah. Uh, but my lead actress, Lauren Pill, actually worked there part time. So the owners were like, OK, as long as you clean everything up afterwards, you can shoot here. And we just want credit in on IMDb and at the end of the movie. And I'm like, great. So every everything with that actually happened uh, fairly easily. Wow, that's awesome. It was amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. 
Yeah. But yeah, that yep. was something that I wanted to do for a long time because it, it's it's a passion of mine, uh, yeah. German expressionist films. And yes, Hollywood would never let anybody yeah. make that type <laughs> of film nowadays. And um, that's why I thought it was cool that you did like a feature of it too. Like I uh, I spoke with this London filmmaker and he did the silent movie too, but it was a short. And I think it's cool to see indie filmmakers doing this because it can definitely, I mean, it's something that you just rarely see. It's a way to automatically distinguish yourselves or making something about you unique in there when you're doing that when literally almost nobody else is. I think that's really cool. And and so you mentioned the, um, you know, the, like the German expressionist influences. So what are some of your other influences that just go into your movies in general? And then the second part of that question would be, is there a, a movie or a couple of movies you watch over and over again? And what do you think it is about those movies that connect with you? Well, as far as influences, I mean, that's the thing. I don't really, I don't know how this would come across. I really don't have influences um, as far as other filmmakers. Because I don't really, I don't get starstruck by people and I'm not a fanboy of any particular filmmaker. I, I like, a, you know, a lot of different style of films. And the, and the funny thing is, is a lot of people expect jd ellenberger to sit around and watch horror non-stop um but i rarely watch horror i i mean my writing styles horror the films that i love to make are horror because i love psychological thrillers and so you know don't get me wrong some of my favorite psychological horrors are, or you know things like misery with kathy bates and james Caan, yeah or you know stephen king the mist or the Shining and things of that nature. I'm not really into splatter horror films at all. I'm not really into a lot of just blatant sex for no reason, nudity for no reason. I've always been more into, I guess, what the classier type of uh, psychological horror films would be. Um, I was raised on Hitchcock and Rod Serling. Mm -hmm. So I would say if I had to pick any influences, it would probably be those two, along mm -hmm. with the Fritz Lang and the F.W. Murnau. But, um, when I'm home and movies that I would watch over and over again, oddly enough, and I'm a huge, you know, my first love at the age of five or six was stand-up comedy. And I thought, wow, when I get old, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. Still to this day, humor and jokes. I had grown up watching Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin and just comedy in general. Oddly enough, those are the movies that I tend to watch when I'm just home relaxing. Yeah. Cool. That's great. It's yeah, completely so. different from what I do and what I make, but I think maybe, you know, maybe I need a diversion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. From, from, you know, it's like if you you live your life on, on a radio show or on a podcast, yeah. probably the last thing that you want to do when you go home is watch somebody else on the yeah. television with a podcast or a radio show. You're like, yeah. I just need a break yeah. from that. So I see what you're saying for sure. Yeah. And I do think that also, I mean, it's, it's interesting to – to see like what like I mean there, there's a guy who was like he loved silent movies it was like his favorite movies and he was also like super into heavy metal he listened to heavy metal all the time and then it was in the what the right? like uh, Buster Keaton and all that stuff he would go to like the silent movie theater almost like every week but I thought it was cool yeah it's everybody has sort of like different kind of things that they watch or like as, apart from from what they make yeah but it's interesting you brought that up it's like if you're making a podcast you don't want to watch somebody make one yeah that's true okay so let's talk about. Uh, Lacrimose Primrose. Uh, tell me about uh, what kind of, well, first of all, uh, where does that name stem from? Uh, well, the Lacrimose Primrose was a short story that I had wrote 
I had written that story probably three or four years ago. Because when I'm not making films, I'm an author, and I was working on a collection of short stories, which I have yet to release. But uh, so I started writing the Lacrimose Primrose. Mm-hmm. The title just uh, just flowed together because of, of the rhyme and and the way that it sounded rolling off the tongue. That's how mm-hmm. I just came up. Well, and also too. Um, the story does revolve around the primrose flowers. So uh, essentially, the main synopsis of the story is that a once best-selling author by the name of Caleb McCallum has a very traumatic, life-altering event where he loses his daughter, Annie, at a very young age. And the primrose was her favorite flower. Spurred by the death of his daughter, he just becomes a raging alcoholic and goes down this very dark psychological wormhole uh trying to cope with his daughter's death it's it's really i guess the best way that i could possibly describe it so it's a very dark psychological thriller which revolves around the inner demons that caleb faces and he uh, blames his wife for his daughter's death so that obviously puts some tension in their relationship as well and so yes it's it's a rather bleak disturbing psychological thriller cool awesome yeah uh, it looks cool it's got like a ghost story vibe from from when you see the teaser as well too is it i don't want you to give anything away or whatnot but is that part of it as well too or yes it very much is i was trying to keep the teaser very vague and not yeah. give anything away since we're in post and we have to go into the studio for adr um you know i'm not able to cut an official trailer as of yet so i thought you know we're in post now i want to build a little bit of excitement about the film see uh, just so people know that it's out there and things are getting done. So I'll just do a quick teaser. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, we have this supernatural paranormal scene, there, which actually is a semi-consistent theme throughout the entire movie. Um, but I thought, okay, you know, we'll do this as a teaser. It won't really give much away. And what I have to say about shooting that teaser, for, firstly, you know, when I discovered what I wanted to do as a filmmaker, because when I first started, I was all over the place. I'm like, do I want to be like a, a Lloyd Kaufman trauma type mm-hmm. craziness or mm-hmm. do I want to be what do I I had no direction. I had no sense of direction. I had no style, had no nothing. I, I Like I said, I wasn't even I didn't even intend to become a filmmaker. So those were things that I had never really thought about. And then with Noctambulist. That's when I really started saying, you know, my niche going back to the age of 10, I was always uh, I started writing seriously at the age of 10. I was heavily inspired by Edgar Allan Poe. So I guess we can hearken back to that as an influence um, would be Edgar Allan Poe. So those were the types of stories that I had always written. I thought, you know, why are you trying to search for yourself uh, when your entire life you've just wrote very dark psychological stories? Just go that direction because that's what you're good at and that's what you know. Um, so that's what I did with Noctambulist. And then obviously I wanted to keep that up with the lacrimose primrose, but, you know, being almost 50 years old now and the eighties horror was quite impressionable on me yeah. <laughs> the day I thought, you know, I want to mm-hmm. go, I want to do something that has more of that 80s style <laughs> vibe with it. And so that's my intent with the lacrimose primrose. So I switched it up from a twenties black and white silent mm-hmm. film to now I'm going back to the eighties. Uh, that sounds great. sounds really cool. The teaser is fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Do you have a release date pending for it? Or is that something that you're just going to uh, release later on? I don't. Well, I, unfortunately I don't get to decide the release date. Yes. 
Um, that's up to the distribution company. So ultimately, my goal is to be done with the film by the end of fall as far as the ADR, everything's done, ready to go. Get that over to the distribution company. And then from there, I mean, unfortunately, it takes longer than I would like because they have to get everything set up for the brick and mortar stores and then get everything set up for the VOD streaming services. And sometimes, you know, that can take like, for instance, with Noctambulist, Noctambulist premiered at the Worldcon 75 International Film Festival, which was held in Helsinki, Finland. It debuted there almost an entire year before it was released yeah. in stores, which is which uh, in a way, you know, in a perfect world, you would like to have your debut, you know, maybe a month or two before it hits stores so that it's fresh in people's minds. But sometimes the process of the, you know, for the distribution company is it takes longer than than I would like, but it's not their fault. Uh, I'm, I just get very eager, like, OK, it's done. Yeah. Let's show yeah. the world now. So. But, you yeah, know, the one thing that I really like about Lacrimos is I'm anti-CGI, so everything has to be done practical. Oh, good. Because awesome. I love practical stuff. Yeah, CGI takes me out of a movie, unless it's, like, balanced. I mean, there's certain things you can do with it, but if it's overly CGI, it takes me out of a movie, definitely. Yeah, definitely for yeah. me, it's just – and it's also the art mm -hmm. form behind uh, making practical effects. So, for instance, the yeah. test that you mentioned – uh, that was all done practical. Every everything about that. In fact, I had to I had to film that scene in reverse, and I had to map out everything into my head as to okay, we have to film everything in reverse, and then I have to switch it around again in editing. And then, uh, as far as Annie, the ghost girl appearing in the mm -hmm. hallway, no CGI there either, no green screen, nothing. Um, I did that the old 1920s silent cinematic way, which was done very well in Phantom yeah. Care, which I still think to this day, I, I, I would be willing to bet anybody the effects in Phantom Carriage, which were uh, practical effects done. And I put that up against any C, anybody CGI, and I would say Phantom Carriage, hands down, just for what it had accomplished at that particular time is monumental. Uh, but what I did for the ghost girl in the hallway um, is that I just shot the hallway for three minutes with no one there, just yeah. shot it how we needed to be, and then had the actress step in and film several minutes of her walking up the hallway, and then I superimposed the two formats and changed the opacity on the second layer to give her that ghost translucent coming through the door effect and walking down the hallway, but there was no green screen, nothing computer genera generated. That was all how they would have done it back in the 1920s. Oh, it's awesome. And it makes it creepier too. It makes it a lot yeah. creepier when it's like that. It's great. Yeah, it has that, that effect that has that kind of like jittery effect that they used to use in stop motion when the mm -hmm. puppets would walk around all freaking yeah. in the, in the Harry house and stuff. And it's just so cool to see that, but no, for like, ghost story kind of stuff it makes it a lot freakier so i think i think that'll have like a better impact especially from people who are watching used to watching like all the modern day effects and those because that's just all sort of the new ghost stories nowadays they'll just throw all the modern cgi effects at it but that's super cool that you're doing it that way and is there any kind of um lessons or things that you learned from mistakes that are made on previous movies that you apply to this one to help make it go smoother or did it go less smoothly than some of the other ones I mean, and also, I mean, there's always some issues, you know, I mean, the biggest issue with this was uncontrollable on our end. The home that we filmed in was built in the 1950s. There's a lot of hard wood. Mm -hmm. I don't come out and say that the film takes place in the 80s. Like at no point during the film 
do we really come out and mention that the film is supposed to be set in the 80s, but we mm-hmm. were trying to give it that vibe because yeah. I don't, I will never, I say that now, who knows, my my ideas may change in the future, but as of now in the way that I've always been, I don't, I don't like technology as it is to begin with. Yeah, um, I hear you, yeah. And <laughs> I don't like mm-hmm. to show anything that's modern and super technical. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the aesthetics are pleasing. I think that there's just something more beautiful with old fashioned furniture and old fashioned yeah. homes. And so I really did my best. There's no cell phones, no modern TVs, no modern radios, nothing in lacrimose that would give away the fact that it was actually made in 2022. So it has a very 1980s style look to it. Uh, but with that, a lot of the rooms that I shot in were minimal as far as mm-hmm. furniture goes. Yeah. And because of that, we had a lot of wanted, unwanted echoes mm-hmm. with oh, the audio. Yeah. And it just got to the point where I was just like, you know, we're fighting the audio issues so much with all of the echoes. And then uh, we're filming in a fairly heavily residential area. So passerbys would be driving, blasting hip hop music as loud as possible. And that's picking up and helicopters are flying overhead. And I, I thought, well, you know, this is a lost battle if we're trying to, you know, pull this off and and the audio has to be just as perfect as it is visually. So, you know, we're essentially just going into the recording studio and just doing ADR to, uh, that way the audio is absolutely perfect, professional and crisp. So, um, you know, with any film, you're always going to have some. That was the only issue, though, that, that we really had encountered with Lacrimos. Um, you know, other than that, everything was fairly smooth. But you always want to learn from past experiences and you always want to keep yeah. still to this day. Uh, if you're not learning, I don't care if you've been in the business for 30 years, you should always learn something new on every endeavor. No, Nobody is ever to the point where they can't learn something new or or, you know. Um, so yes, I'm always learning, always growing. I think that everybody should be, and unfortunately there's always going to be problems, little gremlins that pop up on production mm-hmm. sets. Yeah. Um, you just try to keep those at bay as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And you also have to know, uh, how to maintain composure and say, mm-hmm. it's okay. You know, we got this, we can't control this, but we'll fix it and we'll do it. So yeah, because if you break down, then everybody else is going to be breaking down. <laughs> so, right. yeah, that's true. <laughs> yes. That's true, and that's like a, and that's I think a very difficult thing to be able to do. Um, and you notice that with people sometimes when they start making their. Friend. I remember the guy that this guy I went to college with, and he worked at the video store, and he was trying to make his first movie, and he after about like three weeks, he just had like a mental breakdown and and just couldn't do it anymore. But it's a very, it's a difficult thing, and it's very overwhelming. But I think these kind of stories help people and especially um you know they mentioned uh, one part in the documentary about like how the independent film community is a very supportive community because people understand what it's like to go through this you know, anybody else trying to make something understands it completely but i think that alone like connects with people and i think the whole independent film community is really cool how sort of cohesive it is and how overall people are very supportive of each other with it yes most certainly and uh, you know i mean that's that's the one thing is that Unless you've actually tried to make a film, you know, I have so much respect. If you're an artist, I'm not in competition with you. In fact, uh, I want you to make the best film that you can possibly make. So there's some independent filmmakers, uh, especially from Blood on the Real, like Michael S. Rodriguez, uh, Max Kirchie, Vito Trabuco. They are some 
if I may use profanity, some pretty fucking amazing independent filmmakers. And when I see them make a wonderful film, I don't begrudge them and say, oh, you know, because some people just like to piss on anything that comes out just because they feel. I say, great. Okay, now I, Michael S. Rodriguez or Vito Trabuco or Max Kirchie just raised the bar for me so that now my next film, I want to try to do even better than that. And I hope that it becomes a friendly competition where everybody supports yeah. one another, everybody's friends, everybody's family. And it's very easy for somebody who has never made a film to become an internet troll and just say, oh, this movie sucked for X and X reason. Um, well, pick up a camera. Go out and try to do it for yourself. And maybe you have a newfound appreciation for what independent filmmakers go through. Because um, it's easy to be a keyboard critic, but go out and make a film and then come back and see what you think. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and that's the common thread that everybody talks about. Well, I thought it was interesting to just see how many problems that like people ran across. And I'm like, and like, that's really going to connect with a lot of people. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. And uh, so that being said about like uh, independent filmmaking and learning the craft of independent filmmaking, how would you discover, like what, basically what's the difference between being an independent filmmaker and any other career on the planet? Uh, well, to become an independent filmmaker, you really have to have, I mean, the thing is, well, unlike any other craft, I mean, independent filmmaking is quite expensive, more so than, you know, any other craft. I mean, I, I'm an author. And I have a, a book publishing deal and I think, oh, fuck, sometimes I should just quit filmmaking because all I need to write a book is a pen and paper yeah. and it's cheap as shit. You know, I don't have to worry. Oh, shit, I have to buy a new camera. I have to buy new lights. I have to feed the crew. I have to buy new editing software. So, I mean, it's really, really, really expensive. And then yeah. most of the times we're funding our like, for instance, when I was making Caustic Zombies, you know, my day job at the time I had a day job. I was making okay money, nothing crazy, but it was enough. And I was bankrolling all of that income into the movie to the point where I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to make my mortgage payment. I mean, how many other crafts and professions out there are you worried about losing your home and losing everything that you have because you're bankrolling all of your income into buying props and yeah. whatever else you can possibly imagine, equipment and so on. So you really have to have the drive and ambition and desire uh, to be an independent filmmaker, there's there's something a little not right about all of us in the head, mm -hmm. which I embrace. I don't say yeah. that derogatory way, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's got to be got to be in your blood, and you got to be super compelled to it, and and be different, yeah, as well too, because otherwise it would be almost impossible to make it through it. Yeah. Um, so tell people where they can find your work and learn more about you. Well, my work is available at uh, all major movie retailers. You can pick up Noctambulist, at Best Buy, Walmart, Target, all of those types of places. Same with Blood on the Real. And then once Lacrimos is finished, the same. Then, of course, they're available at all the streaming services, uh, Amazon, you know, and then Vimeo and everything that you could possibly think of for the majority. So uh, I'm very fortunate to have such a wonderful distribution company behind me getting my work out there because it sure beats the days of going to the post office myself and individually and shipping yeah. a minimal amount of movies to people. So I'm very grateful and very thankful. Um, and then if they want to, I'm not big on social media at all. I, I constantly complain about that. Um, 
but you can find uh, you can find me on Facebook. I think my professional page. If you just type, I think it's official JD Ellenberger might be. I mean, that's that's how terrible I am. I can't give you exact URLs, but I think on Facebook you can find me at official JD Ellenberger. Just look up JD Ellenberger on um, Instagram. You can find me there. I think Seafaring uh, Seafaring Pictures, my production company. I think. I think Zola or somebody just created a Twitter account for the first time. So if you look up Seafaring Pictures on Twitter, um, that's where updates on Lacrimose Primrose can be found as well. So. Oh, awesome. I did notice that there was one on Instagram for, for Lacrimose Primrose as well. Too. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, there is a Lacrimose Primrose Instagram page as well. Cool. Thank you awesome. for bringing that up. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, this is very cool. It's, it's, uh, yeah, your work is really cool. It's unique. Uh, I love to see stuff like this getting made. And so, just Thank tell you. us, like, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, just tell us before, uh, before we part here, what is, what would you like to leave with the audience? The, the floor is yours. What would you like to tell the audience before we go? Uh, just keep an eye out for Lacrimose. If you're into silent movies, uh, please check out Noctambulist. I think that, um, I think without without being arrogant at all, I think that we paid good homage to the silent era. Um, if you're on the fence about watching it, uh, as much as I tried to stay true to the era, um, you may agree with this, Brad. I do believe that I uh, sped up the pacing a bit so that it was more contemporary yeah. feel as far as the speed. Um, and uh, and albeit it's a two-hour short silent short, or I mean a two-hour silent feature, I don't think at least from my perspective, when you watch it, that it feels like a two-hour movie. I think it, it it seems to move along and progress quickly. And I, I think within, what, probably the first 15 or 20 minutes of the film, the tone really changes into a very dark... Oh, yeah, it starts getting creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it starts off as your typical 1920s-style mm-hmm. film, and then about 15, 20 minutes in, things just start getting uh, pretty dark. So I said give it a shot, you know, if you like it. You know, I would love that. I didn't make the movie for monetary success. That's for sure. Nobody goes into, uh, you know, the millennium thinking, yeah, I'm going to make a silent movie and become rich at it. That was purely for the love yeah. of art. But I, I hope that I hope that maybe it introduces some people that may have never had an inclination to sit down and watch a silent movie. Maybe they're like, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot just for for the hell of it. Maybe it introduces them to a new genre that they may have not been introduced to otherwise. So, and I thank the listeners. I thank everybody in the horror community. Um, I support you all. If you're out there making a movie, uh, you have my undying, unwavering support. Um, Because even if I don't like something, at least I could say, you know what, they're out there doing it. It may not be my cup of tea, but my hat's off to you because you're out there, you're doing it, you're living it, uh, you're breathing it. And uh, I have the utmost respect for anybody that's out there um, trying to, no matter how amateurish or how professional it may come across i i respect everybody for just doing it so yeah well said well said yeah good words of encouragement for the audience because uh anybody out there going to make a movie uh you're going to need it but you do have a big support system with people like jd behind you so that's really cool to hear uh so we've been talking with uh, jd ellenberger uh director of the upcoming Lacrimose Primrose, and we'll be posting, we'll actually, we'll post uh, in the show notes uh, links to where people can find your work, and then as uh, you get a release date for this, we'll post on our uh, Instagram site and our website about it as well, too, so it was a pleasure speaking with you, JD. I hope you have a great uh, rest of your day, and I look forward to the new movie. 
Well, thank you uh, very much. The pleasure is mine, seriously. I cannot thank you enough for allowing me to promote Lacrimos and, and my previous films. And um, yeah, I just, I can't thank you enough. So, and thank you to the listeners as well. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's really cool to see um, indie film community uh, come together and support each other on, on all the new projects. So, Okay, all right. Well, everyone out there, have a good rest of your week as well, too. And we'll see you next time on the Dead Harvey Podcast.